Welcome to Body Signals, a Cygnos podcast. I'm your host, Bill Tanser, Chief Data Scientist here at Cygnos. This is Season 2, Episode 12. Can melatonin make you fat? And answers to other Ask Me Anything questions, Part 2, with Dr. William Dixon. On today's episode, we answer questions submitted by Cygnos members. We'll be addressing queries like, Why does my glucose spike at night? And is that detrimental to my weight loss? Why do I experience multiple spikes from a single meal? What about these new semiglutide drugs I've been reading about? Which is worse, high stable glucose or high glucose spikes? And can pain cause glucose spikes? Just a reminder, the statements and opinions expressed by Dr. William Dixon are for educational purposes only and do not constitute medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is established by Dr. Dixon's participation on this show. The opinions and statements of Dr. Dixon do not represent the opinions of his employer. Now on to today's show. Welcome back to Body Signals. We are thrilled to have Dr. William Dixon back on the show. Doc's one of the co-founders here at Cygnos. And for those of you that don't know uh, or are not members of Cygnos, when you join Cygnos, you get access to our um, to our private Facebook group, a wonderfully supportive community. And we decided to go out to that community and ask them what uh, questions they had that they wanted to ask our staff. So we did an episode. Our last episode was uh, with Alyssa. And Alyssa is our metabolic coach. She's one of our registered dietitians. We handled nutrition and uh, diet-related questions. And we decided to save the medical and sciencey questions for Dr. Dixon. So, Doc, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So we're going to launch right into some questions that we got. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. First question we got from our private group was why do I have overnight dips and spikes in my glucose? And the second part of that question, are glucose spikes during the night detrimental to my weight loss goal? This is definitely a question of high interest to people. And I think, you know, even people who maybe check their glucose in the morning or gotten tested doctor's offices before, you know, their glucose has been in a good range. And so, when you're awake and you're checking, it seems okay. And then when you wear a continuous glucose monitor and then you start to see, oh, wow, I'm actually quite high overnight. It's a pretty kind of, can be a surprising thing. And certainly for me, it was, you know, we talked about this before, but how I, one of the first things I learned was that if I ate high sugar yogurts and soy milk from our hospital lounge before I went to bed, I was, you know, 150, 160 all night before dropping down in the morning. And that was one of my first big takeaways that I had. So uh, there's, a, there's a variety of reasons that could be causing this. And like without looking or talking to a specific person, it's harder for me to say exactly why. So I will say the first answer is, I don't know. <laughs> That's part of the joy of this, <laughs> of this experience is, is that something that you have to kind of, to some degree, try to work and figure out for yourself. But I do. Right. Every, some- everyone is different, right? So that is a common theme. And one of the wonderful things about Cygnos is that it's very personal. So, it's not like there's one answer for everyone, but maybe that's a good thing. 
Exactly. But I will give some things to investigate. Um, and maybe it will help you kind of think on and figure it out for yourself. So uh, for me, the first and most obvious answer is uh, a late dinner with a high proportion of carbs or a lot of post-dinner snacking or dessert that you're just continuing to digest late into the night. Um, in general, people process carbs better earlier in the day. You're still moving around. Um, and then we also actually see based on circadian rhythms that people can process carbs better earlier in the day as well. Uh, so which is a, a huge topic we might cover at another time, but and we'll dip into it a little bit in a bit. Um, everyone's different, like we were talking about. And so some people actually like a higher carb dinner, which helps them fall asleep. Um, but for me, generally, you know, I actually feel like I get some, some night sweats and I wake up in the middle of the night and I look at my signals and I'm like, ah, yeah, as expected, I, you know, the pizza that I ate or the spaghetti is, is keeping me up. Um, one thing that we've talked about before is that alcohol can really delay digestion of a meal. And so even just a, few, a drink or two with dinner might, um, might delay what you're digesting until later in the night. Yes, I, I've experienced this myself. And I, at first, I thought I, I'd discover the cure to obesity or weight loss and, and a couple of glasses of red wine. Uh, and I didn't realize in the beginning that those two glasses of wine could delay a spike two, three hours. So if I ate a late meal, that spike was coming in the middle of the night. So that that is definitely I, I've seen that. So anecdotally, I could support that as one as one of the reasons. For sure. And related to that a little bit is is potentially high stress before you go to bed. So certainly if you're if you're on your phone and thinking about a busy day in the morning or, uh, you know, any of the many things that we know we probably shouldn't do in terms of screen time before bed, but we do anyways, that could potentially be something. So some, you know, some nighttime rituals around winding down or decreased phone time, that kind of thing. Um, one of the kind of more counterintuitive answers that I found is actually possibly a lack of carbs at dinner. <clears throat> and so while not to the same extent as carbs, uh, both fat and insulin, or sorry, both fat and protein can increase your insulin in response. Um, and so when you go to bed, you might still have some circulating insulin from the high protein, high fat dinner that you had. And so you might actually be producing glucose overnight to prevent from going too low. And so sometimes if you actually add healthy carbs to your meal, so like complex, high fiber, starchy carbs, uh, see if that kind of increases your digestion of carbohydrates, which actually paradoxically lowers your glucose overnight. So let me see if I understand this. If I have excess circulating insulin from, from those fats or proteins, that's going to cause my glucose to probably go too low. Right, unless I'm insulin resistant, then I've just got insulin circulating. Right. Well, maybe not too low, but just lower. Lower, and then that might yeah. cause like a high, like a, a reactive. Could it be a reactive <laughs> hyperglycemia? Where my yeah, my similar to the way that, similar to the way that where if if people are accidentally giving themselves too much insulin, who are you know for dosing insulin, uh, they might actually have similar counter regulatory things kick in where they actually increase. And so paradoxically, you actually lower kind of nighttime doses of insulin um, for some people who are having higher glucose overnight or high morning glucose. Yeah, absolutely. But your body, your body may be doing that kind of on accident. Got it. And then uh, one of the things that we've been, we've been talking about is, uh, is this way of that the circadian rhythm is, uh, is 
part of all this. And so how, how it's this, you know, rhythm, the circadian rhythm is finding more prominent place in general in, in eating behaviors and, and weight management as well. There's a lot of research coming out about that. Uh, for example, I think we talked about this too, night shift workers, people don't get enough sleep, generally have higher glucose levels, higher lipid levels, higher rates of metabolic disease. Um, in fact, just sleeping more is one way to, to lose weight if you increase the amount of sleep. Obviously, it's the behaviors and the hormone that change in response to your increased sleep. But that's one way of, that people can actually like help support weight loss efforts. And some of this might be through uh, the timing and the action of melatonin. So it's melatonin, as you probably know, is like the sleep hormone. It's released around your usual bedtime or slightly before. And it actually can decrease insulin sensitivity in the short term. And ancestrally, you think about it, if you're, you know, generally fasting as a, as a people, you know, you don't want your glucose to go too low overnight because you need it to still run your bodily functions, right? Including your brain. And so melatonin decreasing the, the efficacy of your insulin overnight makes sense if you're fasting. But as you know, it's pretty rare that people are fasting now to the same degree as they were, you know, thousands of years ago because of our ready access to food. Um, and so that might actually be one of the reasons it's going up. And obviously there's a lot more to this because melatonin actually can work as a supplement uh, that it can improve control of glucose and people with type 2 diabetes. But it might be more about the timing as opposed to the amount. And so that's uh, certainly an area of further investigation but so that night, nighttime eating, if that's when your circadian rhythm is kicking in, can be extra deleterious, right? So let me get this straight. If I take, let's say I take a 10 milligram melatonin tablet before I go to bed, if I also am a late night eater, that might be problematic. Right. So doing those two together would be worse than either one by themselves, right? So just taking melatonin to help you sleep is generally fine right it's a well-studied drug is over the counter you know it's hard to get things over the counter if they're harmful at all although melatonin does have some side effects but if uh if people are taking melatonin to help them sleep and they sleep more probably that's beneficial but if people are taking it to help them sleep but they're also then eating you know the things that we love to snack on late at night in terms of like you know potato chips or whatever that might be boosting the problematic glucose response you're having. From wow. That, that is a fascinating finding. Yeah. Before we move on to the second part of this question, just I want to mention some anecdotal things I've heard from our members and also uh, our staff at Cygnos that some people have reported with, uh, with nightmares that they've gotten some spikes. I, I'm, I imagine that might have something to do with cortisol release and that um, might cause a spike. Well, yeah, that thoughts on that? makes sense in terms of cause and effect. I don't know. Is it the glucose causing the nightmare or reverse? That could be. That's a, that's uh, an interest. I didn't think of it that way. That's an I, interesting. I do point. my best to to avoid melatonin actually, and not from any fancy, you know, metabolic things, but mostly because I have very vivid dreams, including nightmares when I take it, and so that's the side effect for me. Um, and even just you know the the over the counter tablets that you get are are pretty. Uh, like you know a lot more than your body would produce naturally and just you know fortunately i don't work that many night shifts anymore so i can usually be okay if it's just one night shift i i can sleep kind of on either side um 
But yeah, I'm, I would, you know, this might be our next experiment. Is yeah. Should we have people take some melatonin and have, you know, isocaloric, isocarbohydrate dinners and see what happens? Yeah, and th- those of you who haven't listened to some of our previous episodes, we have covered our own staff experiments we, where we act as the guinea pigs and we try some things to see if we can affect our glucose and what we find using our Cygnos app. But on to the second half of this question. So I was always under the assumption that the best thing to do is get a stable glucose overnight. And the second part of this question from one of our members is, okay, so if I have some spikes overnight, is that going to be detrimental to my weight loss goals? I think that's a great question. And again, this is something that's hard to say on a population level, but maybe is more is more specific to you. So first I'll say, you know, people are saying, what, do I, what can I do about it? Um, and other than you know, not eating too close to bed if that's the problem or making sure you get plenty of sleep if that's the problem. Certainly doing some kind of activity after dinner uh, can be extremely useful. So in general, things like uh, strength training uh, can improve your insulin sensitivity for 24 hours, even longer in some cases. And so incorporating some strength training into your day will definitely help lower glucose levels over time. Muscles use a lot of glucose as energy. Um, and it improves insulin sensitivity. So that's great. Even also just doing some, you know, walking after dinner or ability appropriate exercise will kind of suck up that glucose and, and help you um, to keep those spikes lower. But the question of, of whether elevated glucose overnight is detrimental to weight loss goals, again, is an interesting one. So for some, it's possible that that higher, you know, baseline glucose is actually just your glucose level. And that might be reflective that you have some insulin resistance and some, you know, excess metabolically active adipose tissue. So, again, we talked about this before, but not all fat is unhealthy. In fact, most people are, you know, it's rare that people are going to get down to that, you know, super low body fat percentage. And certainly that can be harmful. Um, But fat around your organs, fat around your heart, those are the the kind of fat that we do want to get rid of. And that's what's... um, kind of reflected by this this baseline higher levels of glucose and so so that's one thing is that it might just come down over time as you lose weight and not necessarily be reflective of you um you know of what you're doing during the day but if it is something that's you know that you figure out that you're doing that's causing these overnight glucose spikes it's more about what do you what do you do in response to it and is that affecting your sleep um, so if you're not sleeping well and you wake up and you're hungry because of it, then yeah, I mean, certainly that could be something that means that you're not going to lose weight. And if you're, uh, you know, overnight spikes are because of these high calorie, high carb, high fat dinners that take a long time to digest. then yeah, those are probably detrimental to your, um, to your weight loss efforts. And then, you know, if you, if you are, crashing in the morning because you've been high all night and you wake up super hungry and you have this, you know, either hormonal or hedonistic desires to go out and eat a stack of chocolate chip pancakes. And that's the only thing that will make you feel better when you wake up. <clears throat> then, I mean, for certainly, right, that puts you into that spike crash cycle that a lot of people feel going on all day. Um, and so, I mean, certainly from a shift work perspective, when, you know, I always say when I finish my overnight shifts, I'm not headed home and ready to make myself a, you know, 
healthy egg and spinach omelet, usually I'm out looking for French toast or, <laughs> or uh, you know, a big breakfast sandwich with, uh, with butter and bread and everything. So, uh, so there's the way that you feel after a bad night of sleep might be, might be related to that. Yeah. Got it. All right. Let's move on to our next question. One of our members asked, why do I get multiple peaks or spikes and drops from one meal? Again, context specific, but some guesses. Uh, so first is that you, you know, a, a, a big, this kind of biphasic response or where you have a big spike and then a, a smaller spike in response to an oral glucose tolerance test that actually is an indicator that you might have a, an excellent functioning pancreas and overall minimal insulin resistance. So it might be kind of surprising to see the two spikes, but that might be just that your very first insulin response is extremely effective. And then it clears most of the glucose. And then as you continue to digest, you're, you're letting out a little bit more insulin clearing the rest of the glucose that you, that you are having. Um, so in general, these, these biphasic responses are, are probably better than like a big, long, uh, and eventually tall response, which is just, you know, it's your body saying, oh, maybe I'm not able to clear this glucose as, as quickly. So, so essentially it's like your, your pancreas is operating as a thermostat thermostat for glucose right and it's turning turning insulin on and off to try and get you to that that um, optimal level of glucose and that's why you might see the up and down and not just one straight down do i do i have that correct yeah exactly and especially if you have a kind of a more complex or larger meal you know your stomach doesn't just push all of the food right into your intestinal tract is all at the same time it takes some time and digests over over hours even and so you might be responding to you know repeated kind of boluses of of uh, food if that makes sense yeah that's fascinating and i know some members have asked about their oral glucose tolerance test and a lot of people see that uh, reactive hypoglycemia where you get that big dip right after the ingesting all of that sugar and mm-hmm. some people would assume that was bad but maybe it's it's not so it goes down it bounces up again and it equals out it just maybe that you your pancreas overshot with insulin right and it, it was effective in getting that glucose out of your system and into your your muscles and fat and liver exactly there's not a lot of natural sources of glucose like a soda or like a normal glucose tolerance test right you know yeah. honey and some other things that um, people used to eat to get to get glucose, but there's nothing like a Snickers bar that existed, you know. So <laughs> if uh, it, you know, it's your, your body's expecting that that glucose to be wrapped up in a lot of other stuff, and so it's just um, yeah, it's it's over responding to what is a perceived very high glucose meal, but it's actually just pure sugar coming in. Yeah, absolutely, and I. Uh, I've seen also just with eating longer meals or meals that are served in several courses that sometimes I see a multiphasic um, response in glucose, but it, maybe it's just because, you know, I had an appetizer, then I had a main course, and then there's a dessert, maybe some gap between those that might just be my body responding to foods as I digest them, right? Yeah, and even, you know, with the, the meal order right if you i mean the salad first is a is a real thing if you get all that good fiber in there it kind of layers out your intestinal tracts and helps you prevent some of this glucose from digesting at first you know it might be just part of of what is uh, changing how you respond to a certain meal so there's a lot yeah. of factors there 
I don't know if this is more healthy, but the, a strategy I've instituted since I, and I've been wearing Cygnos now for two years is that while I don't rush a meal, I I, I don't eat that many uh, multi-course meals anymore because I like to get as much um, space in between my my meal, not, not necessarily spikes, but increases in my glucose between meals. So yeah, that four-hour meal, um, sometimes at a fancy restaurant, Aside from what I'm ingesting, I just don't like to see that drawn out raised glucose. I like to see some troughs in between meals. Is that mm-hmm. is that a good strategy to have? Yeah, I mean, so you know, we the relationship between insulin, glucose, and weight gain. Again, I think we I put this in a post some time ago. It still it still is a little bit up in the air about you know the chicken and the egg kind of thing. But if you are specifically trying to lose weight decreasing the number of times your insulin spikes per day in response to food makes sense, right? So if you're not snacking, if you are eating three square meals that are complex and make you full, right, that's going to be a a very effective way of losing weight. And so as long as you're, you know, again, in the the context of just one person, it's a lot easier to, to look at someone's, you know, if you're high all day and it's because after, you know, at lunch, before lunch, you had a you know a, a bar that's three hundred calories, and after lunch, you had a cookie. You know, all of those things add up if that's causing your glucose to go up too. So, uh, though there is one other point, and I think you already touched on this, that it could be if you see a multiphasic uh, curve, it, it could be the result of alcohol that that mm-hmm. might cause that delayed spike, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not like a, that's not a productive regulation of of glucose. Although, right. I would, <laughs> right. Know, so my whole strategy of my 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 diet that's a wine based yeah. uh, weight loss plan <laughs> is lots probably of, not the best. Empty calories. I you know I enjoy a beer every once in a while myself, but as a from a weight loss perspective, alcohol is is pretty it's pretty harmful both from the empty calorie standpoint and also from the you know, the behaviors that it encourages in terms of decreased sleep and, you know, eating while you're de, uh, a little more liberal with your food intake. Right. As, as well as that uh, greasy meal the next morning. Exactly. So um, on to, this is a, a specific medical question from one of our members. Wanted to know your thoughts on some of these new semiglutide drugs. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right correctly. Yeah, semiglutide, semiglutide and yeah. terzepatide is the one that like basically just got approved for uh, type 2 diabetes and was up an obesity indication is probably soon to come as well. So in general, I think these medications are you know, completely amazing and for a lot of people will revolutionize both diabetes and weight management. And so, the, you know, two out of three, but soon three out of three are going to be prescribed for either indication. There was actually an interesting paper I was reading recently that uh, is was essentially suggesting that management for type two diabetes should actually be focused on you know obesity management or excess weight, excess fat management as opposed to glucose control specifically. And so these drugs, I think, will actually be kind of a mainstay of diabetes treatment um, before some of the other medicines that are not necessarily affect your weight, but just your glucose, interestingly. 
Um, so what they do is they work by binding something called glucagon-like peptide 1 receptors, and this has a few effects. First, <clears throat> these medicines increase insulin sensitivity and insulin production to decrease glucose level, and this is especially in response to dietary glucose. Uh, they increase feelings of fullness by decreasing gastric emptying and decreasing glucagon production, and that's the what's released in response to kind of low glucose, and that can make you hungry or encourage you to eat. Um, and so, or and also encourage your body to release glucose into your bloodstream. And so, if you know, it makes you feel full for longer. And then, also, even interestingly, it acts on parts of your brain that mediate hunger, so that it actually might be decreasing hunger signals and food intake. So, you can imagine that it's a pretty effective drug for weight loss or a medication for weight loss. But they don't make you lose weight, they just make it easier to eat in a way that helps you lose weight. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and then over a longer term, when you lose weight, it helps prevent some of the weight regain that people experience as their hormones try to regulate back to baseline. So some of what your body does is if you're losing weight effectively, it tells you I'm starving, you know, time to eat more. And this, these medications kind of help block that to some degree. So, you know, but again, they're not, they're not magical. Nothing ever is. Even with these highly successful randomized controlled trials, they're running with like 15, 25% body weight loss, which is incredible. There were still some people who didn't lose any weight at all, or even maybe gain some weight. And then both, you know, placebo and treatment arms had lifestyle changes as a feature, right? You still had to go on, you know, people still get put on 12,000 calorie diets or whatever, even if they're taking these medications. And is it true, Doc, I've heard that on these medications, if you stop, then eventually uh, you, you probably will regain the weight if you're not uh, engaging in any other lifestyle changes to keep the weight off. Yeah. If you do, you know, if you do nothing different and change nothing, even while you're on the medications and lose some weight, same thing will happen once you stop taking. Um, you know, there are some other things that are less great about them. Some people don't like the injectable aspect of it. They can have some side effects, certainly when you first start taking them, like nausea and vomiting from that kind of feeling of being full. For some people with genetic conditions, there's a bit of a higher risk of certain like rare cancers. Uh, and mostly they're just like super expensive. You know, so some of them are $1,500 a month. Um, there was a, insurances don't always necessarily cover them. <clears throat> even for the indication of obesity, which they're supposed to be covered for. Um, there was a, a New York times article this week that I sent you. And it yes, was some, I really, read it. some really kind of our, the top obesity researchers about how, uh, about how difficulties are to successfully prescribe to people and have them covered. Um, one of them even said how like, you know, perversely they're excited when their patients are in diabetic, you know, finally into diabetic range so that they can get these meds covered for the diabetic indication because they're not always covered for the obesity indication, uh, which is just crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's actually it's crazy when incentives aren't in aligned the, the proper way. You get these bizarre outcomes like that yeah. were pointed out in that article. Exactly. Um, but it speaks to the, the statistic that, um, you know, only about 1% of people who are actually eligible for obesity treatment are prescribed anything. So there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, and, you know, some of that is this obesity stigma that, you know, it's a lifestyle choice or it's like a moral failing or all these things and not that, you know, people are 
some people are genetically predispositioned and we live in a world where, you know, obesity is uh, a not surprising outcome for the environment that people are, are existing in. So it's, uh, I think these medicines are great. <clears throat> I think their use is going to go up like crazy, but we definitely have a, some work to do before they're a little more widely adopted and affordable. Great. Thanks for that, Doc. And let's go on to the next question, which is uh, from one of our members, which is worse, stable high glucose? Well, I've seen this one a lot. Stable high glucose or a big spike with low glucose in between? Yeah, I mean, again, this is you think about trends and per percentages and how much time are you stable high and how big your spike is and all that. So without a little more context, uh, can be tricky to answer. But in general, I'd say that uh, low baseline glucose with occasional big spikes, especially in response to like a large, you know, glucose ingestion, if you're having a piece of cake or whatever, is more reflective of a, a healthy metabolism than a baseline elevated glucose that is more stable. Um, so we talked about, you know, how glucose spikes by themselves don't have to be bad. Um, but if you're trying to lose weight specifically, keeping, you know, glucose spikes down can be an effective strategy. But from a standpoint of like, what is your current health, not what your goal health is or your goal weight, um, then a higher baseline glucose is probably more reflective of a dysregulated metabolism or insulin resistance. And so, you know, that probably means that you have some excess energy stored in the form of fat in your body. Um, and you're, you're probably burning that because you're not spiking. It means that you're probably not doing the things that cause spikes, which in general are, you know, high carb, high calorie meals like we've seen, but that you still have plenty of excess energy. And so the lower, the lower energy, um, the lower glucose likely means that you're probably have a, a more healthy metabolism, but there's of course a difference between a, you know, a baseline glucose of a hundred or 130 or 80, you know, those are all, those all mean different things too. So on to our last question that we have for you today. Um, this is an interesting one. Someone asks, does pain or inflammation cause glucose spikes? Yeah, this is an, an awesome question, and I had to do some research for this one, and so we'll see what I've come up with. I'm going to try to ignore inflammation for now because that's a, it's a little bit nonspecific. There's a lot of reasons that people can have inflammation. Inflammation is not always bad, certainly, although it's it's kind of bandied about in the you know the wellness space is do this to decrease inflammation, you know. But there's lots of inflammation that's good, for example, in your muscles after you work out. That's good inflammation. So I'm gonna, and, and that could be a chicken and egg question, too, right? Because uh, elevated glucose, elevated insulin could cause inflammation as well as possibly the other. So, yeah, let's right. just talk instead about uh, pain and whether right, it causes exactly. glucose spikes. Yeah. Um, so with just pain, you know, I, I'll, I'll split it into three categories. Categories. There's kind of acute pain, chronic pain, and then psychological or emotional pain. Um, certainly when people with diabetes uh, come to the emergency department when they have high glucose levels or their medicines aren't working or, you know, one of the things that we try to figure out is, is there an infection? Are you in pain? What else is going on? 
because it's rare that people, you know, their glucose levels just go up by themselves that their medications have previously been working. And a lot of times we find that the urinary infection or the skin infection or something like that. So uh, acute pain, I found a, a paper that kind of suggested as to, as to how this can happen. So acute pain can cause insulin resistance by decreasing non-oxidative glucose disposal. So this is your high-energy, short-duration uh, glucose use, so like muscles or running and jumping, that kind of thing. It's causing the same, um, you know, same it's decreasing how much of your ability to use glucose for those things are, which is interesting. Um, can cause increased cortisol, epinephrine, both of which can increase glucose. Uh, this is sort of the opposite of the improvements in insulin sensitivity that you think of with physical activity. And I think we had one member who was posting about her glucose being higher after she twisted her ankle, which is like double, right? Like you, you both have the pain that's causing your glucose to stay elevated. And then also you can't do the same exercise you might have to bring it down. Um, but I think, you know, this is, this is harmful in the short term other than, you know, having a little bit higher glucose. Probably we don't know that um, if it's damaging outside of like, if you're in the hospital or recovering from an injury um, or like a infection in chronic pain, there's a, actually a lot of research around chronic pain and elevated glucose. And there does seem to be a feedback loop here. So long-term increased glucose itself can cause pain, like with neuropathy, which, you know, even people with prediabetes can uh, start to have. And then higher levels of glucose decrease wound healing and can make things like cuts or broken bones take longer to heal. And then there are also pretty uh, direct associations between daily chronic pain, uh, like fibromyalgia, and higher levels of glucose. Although also fibromyalgia is more common in people who have, you know, higher BMIs or prediabetes in general. So it's hard to say what's driving what, but certainly you can see how daily chronic pain would cause stress, release of stress hormones, which themselves increase glucose, which decrease healing, which causes more pain, which, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, kind of that feedback loop would feel like that. And then psychological stress or psychological pain is not all that much different from acute pain in terms of the way that your body reacts to it and the release of these stress hormones like cortisol, epinephrine, growth hormone. Um, and so those hormones make it harder for your cells to use glucose. People with diabetes and diabetes under worse control, so the higher your A1C is, for example, have in general higher rates of depression. Understanding, of course, that living with diabetes is, can be really hard for reasons other than the glucose itself. Um, and while stress can cause glucose to be elevated, the opposite is true. So you know, people who meditate or do yoga or these like mindfulness exercises can actually directly bring down glucose for some people. Which is, a, that's a great point. So some self-care in terms of managing your stress is a great way of helping with some glucose dysregulation that's a result of stress and psychological stress. Yeah. And going back to the whole me being a medical doctor thing, I would never say stop taking your medicines and, and meditate uh, to cure yourself. But certainly the thing, the, the two in combination, uh, if for you are helpful, I can imagine being kind of complimentary. For myself, in terms of like psychological stress or anything, even though I don't necessarily like I hadn't put the symptoms together prior to wearing a CGM, but certainly 
I can, you know, I've gotten some headaches or I get more annoyed more easily if I have a big spike and dip is kind of, I have these hormones raging around, um, but not everybody responds to glucose in that way. But from a weight loss perspective, like what do people do when they are stressed? You know, it's eating comfort food or ignoring physical activity or sleeping less. Um, all these things that we're kind of talking about are actually can lead to improved glucose control. And so if your stress is causing uh, these glucose spikes and also these glucose spikes are causing stress and changes in your behavior, then you can imagine like, you know, how, how that would be a bad cycle as well. And so if you're tying in these glucose changes with stress and finding non-food ways of managing stress uh, could be helpful to a weight loss effort. So. So, Doug, we really appreciate your uh, your expertise and all the insight that you've uh, lended these questions. And I want to thank the members as well for submitting such great questions. And uh, we'll be taking more for our next AMA. So uh, thanks for joining us, Doc. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Body Signals. We hope you enjoyed this show. Please take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to Body Signals on your favorite podcast platform. We have a special offer for Body Signal listeners, a 20% discount on Signos. Just go to Signos.com, pick out your plan, and get a CGM in the mail to connect your body in a whole new way. During checkout, you can use the code BODYSIGNALS, that's one word, no spaces, body signals to get your discount. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode.